let's get ready to study God's Word. to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time for another devotional study. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.asbzone.com, where you can find links to our previous episodes and various Bible study resources. Let's have a word of prayer before we get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, that we have the privilege of gathering together like this. We thank you that you have provided for us an opportunity to study. We pray that you will bless us, that you'll come into our midst, that you'll give us wisdom and understanding. We pray, Lord, that this will be a blessing to those who hear it. May we rightly divide your words of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's study is entitled, Correct Context is vital. Our passage for this study is 2 Peter 3, 16. As also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 Correct context is vital. I picked a passage here. It only has pronouns in it. Who is Peter talking about? He's referring to the Apostle Paul. So he's saying, he said some things about Paul in the earlier verse. He's writing a letter to the church at large. Peter, that is. And he says some things about Paul, and then in verse 16, he says, and also in his epistles, in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, salvation things, that's what that Peter was discussing earlier, in which are some things hard to be understood. Okay, so in Paul's writings, talking about salvation and about good Christian living, there are some concepts that are difficult to understand. And those that are unlearned and unstable rest them, twist them, fight with them, as they do with other scriptures, unto their own destruction. I just provided you some context for what this verse means, because it didn't have any name in it. You know that Peter wrote it but you didn't have any other clue just from this verse. If you had opened your Bible to that passage, you would look up and down and get a sense of what was happening in that chapter. And you'd realize that Paul had been mentioned earlier, our, our dearly beloved brother Paul. And so you would have a better understanding of what was being said and what it meant to you. Context, from a scriptural standpoint, includes not just paragraph before, paragraph behind. It includes who is speaking, who is writing, on behalf of whom, 
And what was the purpose? What caused this letter or message to be written? Who is it being written to? How was it received when it was given to them? What did they do about it? What was the intended outcome? And in looking at that, it gives you an advantage in understanding how you apply it to yourself. Context is important. Context is also important because depending on who is speaking to whom in scripture, certain things will get said or not said because they don't have to be, right? Think about when you're having a conversation at home with family or with friends that you know versus when you're speaking out with someone else, a group that's not as familiar with with you. You have to provide more context and background when dealing with people who are new to you or not familiar with your with your um, background or your experience. You have to be more careful, more communicative with those people. Whereas with your family and friends, you can say little things and, and everybody catches what it is. Uh, my brother and I grew up watching a lot of of uh, cartoons and, and things of that sort. Um, and sometimes when my brother, my sister and I are together, we'll see something funny and we can just mention a name or a few words of a situation. And because of our shared context, there's understanding, right? And that's what an inside joke is, right? An inside joke is when two people or or a subset of the people present are sharing in the humor of something that a broader, that the larger group of people don't understand because they don't have that shared context. They don't see the same thing and they don't have the same frame of reference. Why does this come up? And having a correct context is essential for understanding doctrine, understanding the Bible, understanding why you find certain things in certain places, but not other places. One of the things people will argue about is in relation to the Sabbath. In the New Testament, they'll say, hey, people didn't speak about the Sabbath. And they'll say that was an Old Testament thing. Instruction was given when it was unknown and when it was not being followed. You almost never see any place in the Bible where God just gives you instruction even though everybody's doing it. In the few places in the New Testament where you'll see Peter or Paul say, and I don't even really have to tell you this, but X, Y, Z. And then they get into something they want to tell you that's larger, right? You don't need to rehash the parts that people are getting. You need to reemphasize or instruct in the areas where people are not getting it. Whenever you read in the scripture and you see a certain type of commentary taking place, you can understand the nature of problems that are taking place in that area. When you see a letter from Paul to a group, the issues that are being discussed indicate the problems the group was having. Sure, that message is is vital to everybody because there's a group that's having the problem that you want to communicate. 
There's another group that may have the problem later if you don't allow them to understand that that's a problem to be vigilant about. And there's a group that's not having that problem, but it's good to reinforce that they shouldn't have that problem, right? So no matter where, what stage you are in, it's not bad to be aware that this particular message is out there. You don't have to ride someone who's not doing something that's wrong, but it certainly doesn't hurt if they know that this is preached again, right? Recently, in relation to the Sabbath issue, I had someone argue that um, that Jesus in his ministry never, ever, ever preached about the Sabbath. Never. He never mentioned the Sabbath. He didn't command anyone to keep the Sabbath. Now, it's very true that Jesus did not preach to anyone about the Sabbath. But as I pointed out, he also didn't tell anyone not to make any graven images. In fact, if you think about it, a lot of Jesus' ministry was not simply telling people how to do things. I think we ignore the fact that in training people, in leading people, there are things that you say, but there are also things that you do. Right? Think about a child and how they learn to speak and how they learn to walk. You don't instruct them. You don't tell them, okay, balance, put one foot in front of the other. They start to make these moves because they watch people around them. Right? So example is as much a part of teaching as is instruction, audible instruction. But back to context. Jesus didn't tell the Jews about keeping the Sabbath because it was one of the few things he didn't actually have to tell them about. They knew the Sabbath was important. Now, we can argue that they didn't keep the Sabbath properly. And, and if you look at the conflicts that he got into with the Pharisees, it was often about how to keep the Sabbath, not whether or not the Sabbath should be kept. Right? He showed them by example and in the various ways in which they ran into each other, pertaining to the Sabbath, that healing and caring for others and loving your neighbor were things that were in harmony with the Sabbath, whereas plotting the murder of Jesus was not really in, in harmony with the Sabbath. So context. The verse we're going to look at, there's a verse we're going to look at and kind of deal with throughout the scripture here. It's Galatians 3, 29, 26 through 29. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. But ye are all one 
in Christ Jesus. And if he be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, so there's some people who look at this passage and they say, aha, there's no more gender. There's no more nationality. There's no more race or ethnic group. There's, everyone is just one in Christ. But if gender and ethnic group and race are gone, if that's what Paul means here in this letter to the Galatians, if it's gone, then why does Revelation talk about the nations coming into the New Jerusalem? Why does Paul give counsel pertaining to how a bishop, an elder, and a deacon should operate and what their spouse should be like? Why would you mention male persons in roles of responsibility with female spouses if gender is gone? Why would you have any rules on marriage and family relation if gender's gone? Why would you say Christ is the head of the church, the man is the head of the woman? Why would you say those things if what you meant in Galatians 3 was that race, gender, ethnic group, social status, all of that disappears, goes away? Now, it's true that in Christ, those things don't have the same kind of meaning. We are all equal in Christ as, as it pertains to salvation, right? We are all equal as it pertains to salvation. My riches don't get me saved. My gender doesn't get me saved. My ethnic group doesn't lead me to salvation, nor does it hinder my salvation. We could argue that riches hinder salvation. Jesus said so himself. How hardly will a rich man enter the kingdom of God? But it's it's our attachment to riches. But again, having it doesn't give you an advantage. In Galatians, Paul is dealing with people who had been lured back into a system of works that they felt guaranteed their salvation. They were back on the circumcision track. They were back on all of the, of the typical ceremonies that God had given Israel to point forward. And they were now putting their faith and their trust in those things. And so Paul is getting on them saying, who tricked you? Who fooled you? How is it that you guys were in Christ one day and now you're trying to manage your status before God through your own works, okay? So when he comes down here in this verse and he says, it's not about man or woman, it's not about Greek or Jew, it's not about money, slave, bond, free, it's not about those things. You guys are all one in Christ. Salvation is equal for everyone. The context of, Paul, of Paul's message to the Galatians is about 
their unity, their equality before God. Not that these other distinctions go away. If you look through the entire animal kingdom, if you look through all of God's creation, God loves diversity. Everywhere you look, in space, in the sky, on earth, in the sea, under the earth, no matter where you look, you see the diversity of God's creation. The idea that man, also made in the image of God, would start out diverse, but as soon as Christ comes, then everything is just one big blob of humanity, is incorrect, can't be supported from this verse. Okay. Colossians 3, he says something similar. Colossians 3, 10 and 11. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. In our Christian experience, Christ should be our focus, right? The fact that I belong to this nation or have my citizenship, my earthly citizenship in this place, the fact that I was born here or accomplished X, Y, or Z is part of who I am. It's part of my experience, but it doesn't, it's not the key determinant of my salvation. You understand what I'm saying? Who you are doesn't go away. When somebody with a background, a worldly background, when God has redeemed that person from that background, that background is still effective when they meet other people who are in that background. Former gang leaders who have come to Christ have more influence on people with that same kind of background than someone who's never seen that. So the background doesn't go away in Christ. It gets sanctified. It gets sanctified so that it can be used for God's glory. People that are highly educated. The Apostle Paul was a highly educated person and that allowed him to go and be in places where education was paramount and it allowed and it was the perception that people had of him. Because Paul, all the apostles, even the ones that were unlearned, when the Holy Spirit got a hold of them, they clearly could speak and say things that were profound. But when someone doesn't know God and they're just judging from appearances, even God reaches people where they are. Paul, as someone who had a background, had Roman citizenship, Paul was better to pick, to be a spokesperson for God before Felix and before Festus and before King Agrippa than other folks might have been who didn't have that background, right? Especially since Paul, as a Roman citizen, had to be treated the same a certain way. The Romans had rules about that, whereas the Jews wouldn't have had there was no Roman governor that was given the time of day to any Jew in, in prison. Okay, so God used those things for his glory. In John 3, 4 through 8, Christ says something important. Speaking to Nicodemus, right? The context is Nicodemus has come to him by night 
wants to understand some spiritual things, knows he's a teacher from God and wants to get a better sense of, of Christ and his mission. And he's he comes and he's talking. And Christ has said earlier on, Christ has said that if you're not born again, can't see the kingdom of God. Look at what look at how Nicodemus answers. Okay, so Nicodemus's answer is going to is going to be a catalyst for Christ's answer. Verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound of it thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Jesus is saying, you're talking about going back into the womb. I'm not talking about an earthly birth or rebirth. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. Okay? You came through the womb the first time, you have flesh. But I'm talking about being born again from a spiritual perspective. That's what's going to get you the kingdom of, of God. Now, people will look at this verse, all right? Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And they take that verse and they quote it, but they ignore the context. Why did Jesus say that to him? Because he told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus said, how can I be born? How can any man be born again? How, what are we going to go back through the womb? Jesus said, I'm not talking about the womb. This is not about physical rebirth. This is about spiritual rebirth. When you come through that that birth the first time, that's physical, that's flesh. What I'm talking about is spirit rebirth. Okay, so that's Jesus' response to him. It is a profound statement, but that's Jesus. that's what Jesus is covering. Okay, so people will leap from this passage now and go to 1 Corinthians 15, 50. And this is Paul talking to the Corinthians. He says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Okay. And they'll say, see, flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom. But the truth of the matter is, what is Paul, when Paul says flesh and blood there, is he talking about your skin and your bones? Yes or no? If he's talking about skin and bones, if he's saying skin and bones can't enter the kingdom of God, we have a problem. Elijah was translated. Moses died and was resurrected. You could argue what kind of body they have. We never got to see it. You could say, oh, they have a different kind of body. But listen to what Paul, the same Paul that's making this statement, the same Paul that says, behold, I show you a mystery. We'll, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Okay. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body 
that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working thereof, he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Okay, so Paul says here that we're going to get a body like Christ's, similar to Christ's, fashioned after. What kind of body did Christ have? In Luke 24, 36 to 43, we're told, and as they spake, context of this passage is the brethren in the upper room after the resurrection of Christ. In fact, this is the same day. This is the Sunday that he resurrected. And as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. Listen carefully. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. Jesus had flesh and blood. So if Jesus had flesh and blood, Luke 24, and we're going to get a new body fashioned like unto his glorious body. Remember, he has resurrected here with his immortal body. Philippians 3 says we're going to get a body like his. 1 Corinthians 15 says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Those statements are at odds if we take flesh and blood in Corinthians to mean the skin and that you know the physicalness of who we are but the bible uses the term flesh synonymous with the term carnal flesh is often used as opposite of spiritual not in terms of ghost versus not ghost but in terms of heavenly minded versus earthly minded, right? Sometimes when we say heaven, we mean space, the air, and, and earth means the ground. But sometimes when we when we say heaven versus earth, we're talking on a spiritual level and we're saying carnal minded, right? Versus spiritual minded, heavenly minded. Flesh here is referring to carnal. How do we know? Because look at how Paul leverages his words in this verse. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. He just did parallelism. And, and you can use this throughout the Bible to help you. Whenever you see a phrase over here and you're not sure how you should interpret it, you look and you'll see that the writer oftentimes in that same verse or maybe a verse or two later will use a, a parallel. They'll do something else. They'll say another pair of, they'll make another comparison. 
And by that, you can understand how you were supposed to interpret the, f- the first. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Okay? So you can see he's talking on a spiritual level, not a physical level. Then he says, we will all be changed. In the moment of twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. The dead will come up incorruptible. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. You see again the comparison. The bodies we have are going to, we're going to get perfect bodies. We're not going to become spirits. The angels are ministering spirits. But we are always going to have a body. It's just going to be a holy body, just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, pre-fall, pre-sin, had bodies. They weren't spirits and who became bodies. They were dust that was animated. And after they sinned, the Lord said, dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. So when the Bible tells us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, it's speaking from a spiritual perspective. The carnal-minded, those in sin, those who are earthly-minded and earthly-focused cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Only those who are spiritually minded. Because if you look at all these passages and if you pay attention to who was speaking and to whom and what they were trying to convey, you will recognize that the context that surrounds who was writing to whom makes it clear that Paul was not telling people we're going to become ghosts or spirits in order to get into heaven. He was not telling people that gender and nationality go away, dissipate, get get subsumed. They still exist, but they don't have the focus for the Christian that they have for the worldling. They are just things about who we are, things about where we've been, things about what we've learned. They're part of our experience but they don't define our salvation. It is vitally important that we understand context. Otherwise, we will be resting, twisting, bending the word of God to our own destruction and to the destruction of those that hear us. We need to have a proper understanding. When you come to the scripture and you hear a verse, you hear a passage, yes, you can derive instruction from that. But be sure, when you just get a verse here, or maybe two verses, someone's like, hey, this proves X. Be sure that you understand the whole context of that passage before you agree that that passage says what it says. Because if you read Galatians 3 and Colossians 3 and come to the conclusion that there's no more man, no more woman, gender's gone, then the marriage relation is broken. All the metaphors about marriage are broken. And there's no point in any of the apostles providing guidance on how marital relations should work from that point on. Doesn't make any sense. You can't say something is done away with and then make it a a key part of subsequent discussion and instruction. You have to look at the context and understand the Galatians have gone astray and we're into works-based religion again. 
And I don't even know if I should say again, because they were Gentiles. They came in, they didn't, well, in, in the pagan society, their stuff is workspace too. So they had fallen back into workspace, into a workspace mentality, right? Different deities, but workspace mentality. And in that mentality, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You don't have any advantage because you're Jews or because you're circumcised or because you're Greeks or you have no advantage because there's no spiritual advantage to those. In Christ, you are all one. There's no more man and woman. Your, your rank in society doesn't dictate anything about salvation. That's the context in which Paul is saying this. He's not saying, okay, guys, when you come out of the baptismal pool, you're asexual. That's not what he's saying. And the only way to ever conclude that he's saying that is to pretend that verses 26 through 29 are the only verses in Galatians. If you look at the rest of Galatians, there's no way to come to that conclusion. Similarly, for John chapter 3, you have to understand the conversation that, that Christ is having with Nicodemus. Why is Christ emphasizing, I'm talking about the spiritual, not the physical? Because Nicodemus is stuck in the physical realm. He's only thinking in a physical context. And Jesus is like, listen, what's born of physical is physical. What's born of flesh is flesh. That's not where our discussion is. I'm talking about heart conversion, not talking about physical features. Jesus is saying that because Nicodemus is not getting it. But he's not saying that to make a broader point that when people are baptized, they become spirits. That's not what he's saying. So we cannot allow ourselves to be bereft of context. We can't read the scripture that way. We we do get used to having favorite verses, favorite passages, and we quote them. And when things come up, we lean in on them. But I encourage you, brethren, go a verse ahead, a verse behind. Because many of the unknown verses in Scripture are bordering the verses that are everyone's favorite. Right? Everybody knows John 3.16. What does John 3.15 say? Lots of passages. People are quick with, with uh, John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. But ask them to read the fourth one. Ask them to quote the fourth one. Similarly, Galatians. The context of Galatians is so straightforward. So many of the arguments that people make, they, if they only realize what was going on in the book of Galatians, if they read the first chapter in its entirety, they would come to different conclusions about this. It's important for us to understand. Context is important. It's vital. Okay? It's vital. Don't get bent out of shape with context. Don't start limiting the scriptures to the people who were originally spoken to. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what context is about. Don't get hung up on, oh, Mount Sinai was only to the Israelites. Just remember, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, pay attention to all the examples that the Apostle Paul gives the Gentile believers of Corinth. Those are all Jewish examples. 
all of them. That's the context of their Christianity. That's the Bible they're working with. So when you go around saying, oh, this was just for the Jews, just remember that every Gentile believer in the first century AD was using that as a guidepost for how they were to behave. When, when we talk about, oh, the New Testament, the New Testament, for at least 25 to 30 years, the New Testament scriptures don't really exist. There's some loose letters back and forth that the apostles are leaving at various churches and they're reading them and, and handing them to other churches to read. But by and large, they're using the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament doesn't get codified for a while. So if the idea is that the New Testament is where the believers were residing. No, they weren't, because then that means the church would have had to start after AD 70. In the meantime, these guys were being taught from the Old Testament. Don't lose sight of that. 2 Peter 3.16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Be careful that you don't rest the scriptures to your destruction and the destruction of those who hear you. Be careful that you keep the holistic nature of the scriptures in mind. Don't let a verse or a passage say things that the whole Bible collectively is not saying, or that is in opposition to the entire Bible. Don't just grab a snippet here to make a point there unless you understand how that snippet was used. Sometimes things are used kind of in isolation. The Bible does that. Jesus did that. There are examples of doing that. But you have to be careful with that, lest you end up coming up with doctrine that is unmatched in the scriptures. Okay, I pray that we will study to show ourselves approved unto God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, that you've given us the opportunity to get studies done. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to enter your word. We thank you that you prepared this word so that in these last days it applies to us. Please bless us. Give us a desire to study your word. Give us wisdom every time we come near it. Help us, Lord, that we'll remember to pray. And I pray that all of those who hear will be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can reach us via email at biblequestions at ASBZone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. We also recommend that you check out the True Wisdom podcast, where Robert and I discuss Bible stories and topics together. Both of these podcasts can be found on a dozen platforms, over a dozen actually, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Please remember our ministries in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share His Holy Word. Thank you.